0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The encourager in encouragement. The giver in sincerity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. I'm going to move that so I don't trip. Wouldn't be the first time that I've tripped on a chord like that. Because, you know, I, I don't talk about this often, but as an adolescent and young adult, I was a member of several different pop punk and emo bands. Ranging in quality from mediocre to pretty bad. The last, surprisingly the last... Um, in college, was the worst of all, of, worse than high school, worse than even junior high, probably. Um, we, we recorded, we, we never played a live show. We recorded a couple of songs, which thankfully have disappeared, since still in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, not everything had an infinite lifespan. But at the end of our run as a band, I, I remember being convinced by some of the other band members, that I was the one who should inform our drummer that we were moving in a different direction, that we would no longer be needing his services. And it was awful. Though it wasn't the intent, it felt very much like a junior high breakup conversation. Like, (laughs) it's not you, it is me. It's them, but it is me. So... There was a confrontation this conflict that led to an expulsion which did not feel good as we turn to our gospel text today we actually find an issue like this that is raised not not in the juvenile sense of of what i have just described like you've been kicked out of the club sort of a, a an expulsion but there is this question raised by jesus are there instances when Those sorts of conflictual conversations are necessary within the community of faith. And maybe the broader question, the bigger question that it raises for us, how do we live in community over the long haul when it is necessarily messy? It is an inescapable part of it. It's just, to, to be realistic, we have to face that. How do we live in community when it is necessarily conflictual and messy does that inevitable mess have to lead to division and harm or toxicity? And I want to maintain, at least I am hopeful, that mess doesn't have to be toxic. It doesn't have to be harmful. So with our countless differences, even in a room this size, with our countless differences and our propensity to sin How in the world can we live at peace with one another for more than a few days? This is a question that I want us to consider over the next couple of weeks. Some seem to think that the only way for peace to exist in a community is to pursue uniformity. So if there are differences or if there is conflict, there must be separation. If anybody dissents from the majority opinion, we kick them to the curb, kick them out of the club, like the conversation I had in college with that poor drummer. I'll never forget you. And some even use this teaching from Jesus that we're going to read in Matthew 18 as a justification for that approach in relationships. And while Jesus does here point to the possibility and even the appropriateness of expulsion from the community in severe cases, that is not the goal. That is not what we desire. Now, this text is a reminder for us that many of the sayings of Jesus are difficult to hear. They're not easy to accept often. They often provide a scathing critique of much of what we are comfortable with. He says some really challenging things, and today's text is no exception. But I think what we find expressed in this teaching is critical for healthy community. So we're going to explore this text for the next couple of weeks. Matthew 18, many of you are probably familiar with it. I'll begin reading in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church." There are a variety of ways to approach this text to interpret what Jesus prescribes for his followers when faced with the sins of a brother or sister. And there's some complexity in the text itself. For instance, in that first sentence we've read, verse 15, we read that if a brother sins against you, this is what you do, which seems pretty straightforward, Pretty easy to understand until we recognize that some of the original manuscripts that we have didn't actually include the phrase against you. It was simply if your brother sins. So, which seems like a, a pretty minor detail. However, depending on how you read this and, and which manuscript you're dealing with, you could end up with two fairly significant interpretive differences, at least when it comes to the practical application of a teaching like this. So does this prescription apply only when I have personally been harmed by an offense? Or is it to be understood more broadly? Should this be the course of action, even if I just see a brother or sister in sin from afar? Or is the application even more narrow than either of those options? Is this interpersonal process limited to the immediate context of this chapter in Matthew 18. Remember earlier in the chapter, we looked at this a couple of months ago, Jesus talks about the value of children. Remember having that conversation? The value of children in the kingdom economy, and he warns that it is going to be unpleasant for any who cause one of these little ones who believe in him to sin. So maybe the instruction we're reading now, in the middle of the chapter, is explicitly connected to that conversation. I raise all of these various approaches to this text just as a reminder that what appears to be simple on the surface might have quite a bit of complexity to it. So that's the first caveat from the beginning. The second one is this. I I want to, from the beginning of this text, as we look at this process of separating from a community, um, that this text has been at times in the church used in situations of abuse to keep victims silent. Well, if you have an issue with that person, you need to go directly to them and if there is a crime that has been committed, or if there are power dynamics at play, like in instances of abuse, I want to suggest that this is not the appropriate path. The authorities need to be contacted. A trusted adult needs to be brought, especially if we're dealing with children, needs to be brought into that situation. If, I, I want to suggest that that is a misappropriation of this text. Anytime we find that the words of Jesus are being used to further harm, we can be sure that we are abusing the words of Jesus. And that has been done with this text. So I want, I want to note that from the beginning. That, those situations, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the normal, everyday conflict and tension and sin that exists within the community. So having established that Thinking through some of the interpretive nuance. Today, what I want us to do, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this text, but today I want to zoom out a bit and focus on some of the potential broad implications. Are there principles at play in this teaching from Jesus that we can apply as the body of Christ? even if the specific scenario presented in this instruction isn't exactly like the scenario we are dealing with? And I think there are. Is there wisdom in this teaching from Jesus that we need to cling to and apply in all of our relational interaction with one another? Again, I think so. Now, for some, the point of this passage could be summed up like this. Well, this is just the sort of bureaucratic red tape that we have to go through in order to get to our ultimate goal, which is to expel somebody from the community. Like, I have to go to our drummer's apartment, go through this little song and dance about how it's not you, it's me, just so we can get to the desired outcome. This is not a series of hoops that we have to jump through to get what we really want. The the other way that this text is often understood is well, as a warning, you, you need to be careful because if you mess up too badly or if you don't see things the way we see them, we are going to first shame you publicly in front of the congregation. We're going to bring this in front of the entire church before we kick you out of the club. Because according to Jesus, we now have legitimate grounds and we have a very specific process for something like excommunication. And while I do think there are some important points that Jesus makes here about church discipline, I don't think discipline for the sake of punishment is Jesus' point. And I, don't, I certainly don't think discipline for the sake of shame is the point that Jesus is making. The, the point, and we get this in the context of the entire chapter, the whole goal is reconciliation and restoration. The goal is that those hoops that are being jumped through at the beginning of the instruction, that those would actually be successful. It's not, well, we have this conflict, there is tension, we have a disagreement, and so we've got to go through this process to make sure this individual is no longer among us. The goal of the church is not to create clones of one another. The goal is not that we would all look alike or think alike if that's the goal, I would suggest that we cease to be the church. That There is a pernicious thought that uh, understands the community of faith as a gathering of like-minded people and basically nothing else. A gathering of like-minded people who always see eye to eye on every issue. But if the church becomes for me a place that is valuable only because I have more contact with people who are already like me, similar political preferences, and similar socioeconomic status, so on and so forth. If that's why I find value in the the Christian community, I have sacrificed the radicality of Christian community for something much more shallow, like affinity-based relationships that are only as deep as the present agreement. And of course, there are some really important things that there is agreement on in the community of faith. We are, after all, Jesus people. We are united around Jesus Christ, and that unity is really important, but I think that's one of the beautiful aspects of Christian community. It is a place where diverse backgrounds, racially, socially, economically, can all come together under the lordship of Christ we put our preferences aside to be united in Jesus Christ with people I may have nothing else in common with. That is the beauty of this radical community. The goal is not homogeny or else you're kicked out of the club. If anybody dissents, show them the door. Now... Many scholars do agree that this text appropriately guides the church in issues of church discipline. There are situations where maybe the entire community needs to be brought in, but even in that extreme case when the the entire community is brought in, the goal in that is not shame. The goal is not expulsion or breaking the community up. The goal is that There would be this personal and communal and pastoral appeal. Be reconciled. The persistent sin that is ongoing is is harmful. And we don't want that to persist. The goal is not breaking community up. The goal is that we would be able to face our sins that cause pain and division in honesty And find a way to move forward together. And this, Jesus says, is how we do that. Verse 15, we'll return to it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If there is sin, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is the first step. What we need to remember is not the first step is immediately going to our iPhone, sending a text to somebody unrelated to the situation under the guise of, I really want you to pray for them because of this sin. I'm I'm really worried about them. That is not the first step. And, And maybe it's true that we do want a little bit of honest feedback. But I think at times, at least as I search my heart, At times when I am guilty of of sliding into that pattern, I'm looking for some affirmation. Maybe even hoping to garner some support in the conflict to make maybe the offending party look a little bit bad in the eyes of a friend to frame the narrative to ensure that people take my side. Shaming somebody else makes me look a little bit better at least it makes me feel better in the moment and i think often that is the temptation we may face i've been hurt and i wouldn't be completely devastated if they felt a bit of that pain too jesus says that that's not how you deal with conflict in the kingdom so this is not about shaming the person who has wronged us Quite the opposite. As far as it depends on us, we do everything we can to preserve the dignity and honor even of those who have hurt us. And one way we do that is by seeking reconciliation just between us. Although that might not be possible, the rest of this process will reveal, but we at least begin there by trying. And I think a part of the beauty of this approach some of the wisdom in this teaching that can can guide many of our interactions with others is that it is possible that this sort of one-on-one confrontation will settle the matter really quickly. Perhaps we will discover in that conversation that the offender isn't even aware of their sin. Maybe they don't even know what they did or didn't do or said or did didn't say, unaware of the pain it caused, and as soon as it's brought to their attention, there is genuine remorse and a desire to make it right. I think many conflicts could be resolved this easily if we would cling to this wisdom from Jesus, but often instead we allow that internal monologue to progress about the events that have occurred, and we allow it to progress unbridled and Eventually that monologue turns into dialogue with somebody unrelated to the situation and we choose to bring dozens of people into the middle of it, forcing them to take sides and it just begins to snowball out of control when it could have been resolved with a simple conversation. Sometimes it is that easy and reconciliation and restoration is possible. And when that happens, that's the ideal. In my view of this text, that is the goal that Jesus is pushing us towards. Now, other times, admittedly, that that initial conversation isn't going to do a whole lot to resolve anything at all. Maybe the person who caused the offense is convinced of their rightness in the situation. Maybe you're convinced of your rightness. You find yourselves at an impasse. That is a very real possibility, and I think we've probably all experienced that. We read this in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If that initial conversation doesn't resolve the issue, then take another person or two. Bring some additional people into the conversation with that person. Now, why might this piece of wisdom be so important in healthy community and healthy relationships? First of all, I think bringing another voice into a situation could be a reminder that I am not necessarily an innocent bystander in this. And even if my innocence in this particular situation is clear, I I desire to appeal to that person, be be reconciled. I I want to move forward in peace. On the other hand, maybe in that conversation where additional voices help ease tension and calm some emotions, and maybe there's somebody there who can broker a bit of peace in the relationship, maybe it will be revealed that I am actually in the wrong, or I'm at least partially culpable in this situation. And when that conversation happens in person with just a few people, dignity can be maintained and community can move forward. Oftentimes, the dignity of the the offending party is a second thought in moments of conflict. And maybe I'm willing to damage a reputation because I'm certain they are wrong. And then maybe peace in that relationship is restored. But I've already enacted irreversible harm or damage to that person's reputation or dignity in the eyes of other people. I think the advent of social media makes this increasingly difficult. Why would I face that uncomfortable conversation and go to all the work and, and face the discomfort of a private reproof when, when I can easily just broadcast my thoughts? And yes, at times, more and more people need to be brought into the conflict to, see, to help seek reconciliation and resolution, And at times, resolution and reconciliation may remain elusive, but I think that is the worst-case scenario. That is a final step that we hope not to reach. At times, we will reach it, but that's not our desire. We'll continue to explore that idea next week, where Jesus says, let them be as a Gentile or tax collector to you. But I want to bring it to a point this morning for peace in community to persist. So that's what we're exploring over the next couple of weeks. How in the world does a group this size, very different people with very different thoughts on a host of issues, how, and our propensity to sin and our propensity to cause harm, how can we live at peace with one another over the long haul? And I think, a first step is that I must be willing to face the personal discomfort of an honest conversation. I also must recognize that I might not see it all clearly. I may need to change as well. And other voices in that conversation can help me understand if that's the case. So I don't want to jump to conclusions in this. I I don't want to immediately resort to accusation i want to be measured in the conflict and move toward unity that there is a difference between accusation between being accusatory highly critical there's a difference between that and being honest we want radical honesty to define a community because love and peace require honesty love and peace don't require Accusation. They don't require an obsession over the mistakes of others, but they do require honesty. Honesty in a manner that seeks to maintain dignity of those involved and hope for reconciliation. But honesty is necessarily a confrontational exercise. So to have healthy community, to have healthy relationships, there has to be an increasing comfort with conflictual conversations, not toxic conversations, but where an issue is brought to the surface. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas argues that peacekeeping in Christian community is necessarily conflictual. Christian community, like any community, is always going to be a place where there is tension, conflict, disagreement, because we are a group of unique and sinful individuals who see things differently. We have selfish streaks. We hurt one another, sometimes unintentionally, but sometimes, unfortunately, that harm is intentional. If we want to be a community of peace, which that's my hope, if we want to be a community of peace, which bears witness to the prince of peace and his kingdom of peace it doesn't just happen it will take intentionality it will take the discomfort of conflict not constant fighting over trivial matters but loving one another enough and desiring unity enough to be honest to face that pain and discomfort in order to seek reconciliation. Because we want the best, not just for us, but we want the best for the entire community and all involved. So how in the world can we live at peace? This is the question I want us to consider. And I think a good first step is honesty. Face to face, private honesty with those, again, we're not talking about if a crime or if abuse has been committed, but face to face honesty with those who have harmed us, seeking restoration instead of choosing to divide and conquer. We want to be honest so that peace might be restored. This is my prayer for my life. It's my prayer for our community. This would become a community of peace that is constantly pursuing reconciliation and restoration, where a conflict or a disagreement doesn't lead to that immediate first step of of separation. But there's patience, there's a desire to maintain dignity in love and honor. Lord, might we become People of peace. Where peace is more than and something altogether different than uniformity. Where peace is much more than surface level agreement. But where peace is pursued through the path of discomfort in the midst of conflict and tension. Lord, empower us for this holy task, I pray. I want to invite you to stand. As we celebrate around the table of the Lord this morning, this is, uh, through and through, this is a table of reconciliation. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe we have been reconciled to our God, but also called into lives of reconciliation with our fellow humans. So as we receive this gift of life in Jesus Christ, may we also be challenged to pursue that. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you come to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own, return to your seat. I want to say a prayer and then invite you to the table. O Lord God, grant your people grace to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.
0: Amen. Would you join us this morning at this table of reconciliation?